0: Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show...
1: I think a lot of artists feel this responsibility. They see their role in the world and their role in society much more clearly than, I think, a lot of other industries.
0: Mary Childs on how finance is portrayed in arts and culture. Hey, everyone. A quick housekeeping note before we get started. We are now making plans for the final 10 episodes of Season 1 of The New Bazaar before we take a brief summer hiatus and launch Season 2 in the fall. And for one of those last 10 episodes, we'd love to answer your questions directly. So if you have a question about the economy or anything else... For me and executive producer Amy Keene, please send it to us. You can email us at hello at bizarraudio.com, and we'd especially love it if you could send your question as a voice memo so that we can play it on the show. Just start with Hi, my name is Jackie Q Listener, and I'm from <laughs> Awesomeville, New Mexico. So which good. I think should is a real is a real place, mm-hmm. right? Or should be. <laughs> um, and then ask your question and please keep it to about a minute long. We're not going to be like super strict on that, but to paraphrase the dude in the Big Lebowski, we do appreciate people who are into the whole brevity thing. So yeah, get in touch and we'll try to answer your question in a future upcoming listener Q&A episode. And now on to the show. That person kind of smirking and laughing in the background <laughs> is uh, Mary Childs. Hi. Mary, how are you?
1: I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Why
0: don't we tell everybody who you are first? You okay. are a host at Planet Money.
1: That's right. Radio NPR's show? economic podcast. You might have heard of it from this guy, Cardiff Garcia.
0: <laughs> That's right. We are former colleagues. <laughs>
1: That's true. Twice, actually.
0: Twice, because yeah. uh, we work together at the Financial Times. Correct. But I think even more significantly, you are the author of a brand new book called The Bond King, how okay. one man
1: made a market, built an empire, and lost it all.
0: Very nice. Thank yes, you. and that's actually exactly what it's about. So that's we what don't it's have to about. say anything more spoiler, about it. it it's, a, it's about the life and career of Bill Gross. He's the so-called bond king, mm-hmm. and it's a fantastic book. Thank but you. that is not actually what we're here to talk about today. That's uh, true. Because you've already talked about it quite a bit. You're sick of it. Right, Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, Am I? Book I like. Me for I, your like birthday I like selling books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, you've you've talked about it on some other shows. So let me just point people to the chat that you had on the Odd Lots podcast mm-hmm. and on the Slate Money podcast. Those were very fun. Those are two of my favorites, and they're great podcasts, anyways. So go check out Mary talking about the Bond King on those podcasts. But the reason you're actually here with us today is because you have a background as an artist. Actually, I do. Uh, you are a painter, but you are also very Artsy minded.
1: Thank you. Which
0: is a totally a real word. It's a
1: real word. Um,
0: yeah. Tell people a little bit about your background. About my uh, secret as an history. Artist. Yeah.
1: So I've always painted. My dad was a painter. Um, he was a, you know, worked at a, a regional bank, but also did kind of a Sunday painting, as they say pejoratively in the art world. I
0: didn't know um, that.
1: Yeah. That's like when they're, oh, you're not professional. It's like a hobby. <laughs> so, like, these are the people that will come to your studio and be like, oh, I'm actually a painter too. My dad would never do that, to be clear, but, you know, he was a weekend painter. Okay. So, you know, we used to paint together and it was always this like fun bonding thing and always a big part of like how i spent my time and how i thought of myself And then I got this fellowship uh, when I graduated from Washington and Lee that um, called the Watson Fellowship. And it's basically a year-long passion project, whatever your passion may be. You kind of pitch them with your proposal. And for me, it was painting portraits around the world to kind of feel – I say feel because when I paint, it feels very, like, tactile and very – it feels like sculpture in a way. But um, feel the way people's faces change around the world and the different kind of structures and features. And it was extremely fun and, you know, an incredibly – amazing, and I I feel very lucky to get to have done that.
0: And you still do this recreationally, too, I know, right?
1: Yes, yeah. So I, you know, it's been hard with the book taking up all my time, (laughs) But I did, you know, as part of this book promotion stuff, I kind of, you know, I think you lose your mind a little when you're promoting your book. So I was like, I'm going to paint portraits of all the bills in this book because there are like five different bills. There's Bill Gross, Bill Podlick, Bill, there's just too many. Okay.
0: So I'm going to make baseball cards. Yeah, men
1: named Bill. And I'm going to make baseball cards of them, which will be helpful mnemonics. You know, people will really appreciate these baseball cards. Maybe they'll be collectible. Anyway, I'm telling you, I like went deep. And so I I like sat down and painted the first one. This is also like a calming extra for me. The run up to book promotion is stressful and right. like there's a lot going on. So for me, it was like very balancing to get to indulge in this other pursuit in this other part of my brain.
0: I can tell you like it by how quickly you're speaking. <laughs> it. Like I can just tell how much you're into it.
1: It's the best. Well, so I'm sitting there and I'm like drawing Bill Thompson, who's this lovely dude who really I would cast who him as Michael Keaton. Who worked at PIMCO. Yes, he worked he at this company the long-time that you profiled, CEO. this
0: bond trading company. That's okay. exactly
1: right. was so the longtime CEO of this company. That's the very, you know, foundation of this book and i'm drawing him he looks just like michael keaton and when i draw him he looks just like jack nicholson
0: oh and i was
1: like oh and like part of it is that i'm out of practice part of it is that people always get warped when i interpret them you know part of it is that you
0: were watching batman at two in the morning one night no that's it that was just in your head
1: that's probably it honestly but like i don't think just judging by the way that came out i was like i don't think i need to antagonize all
0: of the bills
1: so I abandoned the bills 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 project you know one day I may come back to it it's a it was you know aesthetically fun it was enjoyable. is it in a
0: drawer somewhere
1: oh yeah yeah it's in my office yeah okay yeah I keep I'm happy to send it to you
0: well when people hear this I think you know you better lock your doors I think so yeah might try to steal don't it. find <laughs> me <laughs> So you're an artist, and we should also tell people uh, you're married to Scott Lane, who Mm -hmm. did the incredible music for this show. That's right. So it's a very artistic household.
1: It is. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, he's very very talented.
0: Yeah, I know. He's awesome. And so you're on The New Bazaar today because Mm -hmm. I asked you to pick... Some portrayals of finance, which you cover in your day job. That's true. Right? Yeah. In arts and culture that you just thought would be interesting to talk about. They don't have to be your very favorite. They Mm -hmm. don't have to be ones that you hate, just ones that you found provocative enough to discuss. Yeah. Right? Very excited about it. And the fact that you're so artistic and that you also cover finance is both a wonderful kind of complimentary symmetric thing. It also makes me wonder if like something went wrong at some point. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, you know, like, how did you fall into this, you know?
1: Money is the answer, ironically. Oh, good. Because that's
0: what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I blacked this out, but in 2012, apparently I was running around telling people I was about to quit my job to become a painter. I don't know who that was that was doing that. It was me, but I don't know why. I, I had no plans to do this. Apparently, I I don't you know I'm not, I don't think people are making this out to tell me, but. Yeah, I think the financial, um, the compensation structure of being an artist just was not appealing to me.
0: Oh, fair enough. And the compensation structure of being a journalist. A public so radio like journalist that. was a lot better. <laughs> well know? done. Uh, so uh, I asked you to pick all these different examples of finance as they're portrayed in arts and culture. So mm-hmm. we've got a movie, mm-hmm. we've got a book, mm-hmm. a TV series, mm-hmm. a painting, a contemporary art exhibit, and a song. And we're going to talk about them right now. So Can't wait. Here we go. Let's start with the movie. What movie did you pick?
1: Um, for my finance portrayal in American culture, I picked American Psycho. Oh my. (laughs) I think I think it's the right move. Like a lot of portrayals try to express this like prestige-iness or like the complexity of it or the no. All of, of finance, that, of finance? all of that is irrelevant. The core fundamental thing in American Psycho that I think is so correct... I mean, there are a couple, but it's the pettiness. You, We all remember if we've the seen... Pettiness it, the pettiness of
0: finance culture, you mean. Correct. Yeah.
1: So there's a scene in American Psycho where... You know they're all showing their business cards off, and a bunch of
0: investment bankers are sitting around showing off their business cards. Yes.
1: Thank you. This is a problem that I have. I'm like, do you see it in my mind? You see it, right? (laughs) So a bunch of investment bankers are sitting around a table. They're in mergers and acquisitions.
0: This is the 1980s, by the way. Yes. When when things are getting rowdy on Wall Street. Greed is good.
1: Everything is happening. It's like definitely the best time ever to be in this exact chair. And so these guys are all, you know, they're all from the same kind of cut of cloth, if you will. And like their suits are all very lovely, and they're comparing their business cards and is one bone ivory is that i didn't re-watch for this i should have googled the scene
0: i so after you told me that this was your choice i did rewatch it last <laughs> night amazing and basically they use a bunch of different like type sets they yeah, use a bunch of different fonts, yeah. beautiful fonts mm-hmm. the, the thickness the of, the card, thickness the, of the, the card matters and yeah. also like the sort of the gradation of the card—it mm. has like where there's indents and things like that. Mm-hmm. They they Embossing just compare versus it, yeah. yeah, in such minute detail. It's incredible. It's
1: like yeah. a wedding invitation, but it's a business card, yes. and it it instills in them this intense um, jealousy and kind of one-upmanship. And you know, the main character can't believe that this other person's card is like nicer than his. That's like horrifying and unfathomable to him. And so that's one thing that I think they get very right in yeah. in this show. There's also—I don't want to talk too much about this one because it'll spoil the movie. I mean, I think the statute of limitations on spoilers on American Psycho was probably expired. Yeah, but... although
0: some, some brief background would be helpful. This is a movie about an investment banker in the 1980s who is mm-hmm. investment banking during the day, and he's a serial Murdering. killer yeah, and murderer at night. At night. And it, Meticulous
1: at, murderer. Meticulous
0: murderer, and it sort of shows— the double life that I think a lot of these people were leading back then. Where, as
1: murderers. As murderers,
0: <laughs> right. Where they were trying to present themselves as the perfect thing mm-hmm. all the time, regardless Impeding of what the, actually yeah. they were doing you know, during the day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so through all the murders, there's a, you know, it kind of builds and builds and builds through the, through the movie. And there's a point at which you're like, and the character feels this, there's no escape. You know, his actions are going to catch up with him. There's nothing he can do to avoid, you know, accountability. And so he calls someone and leaves the voice message confessing. Am I spoiling too much?
0: No, I think you're good. Okay, it was, it was a long just, time ago. It was a long time ago, yeah.
1: And he leaves this voice message confessing. And due to kind of like a confusion over identity because these – men in the in the show are frankly fungible, and like very easily exchanged amongst themselves. The voice message just does nothing. Like the guy who receives it is like, oh, what a <laughs> what He alarm. thinks he's
0: joking. He, he doesn't even joking. recognize him because has, they all like, look the, the same. Right. He has like the wrong guy. He
1: kind of gets the guy confused with another guy who and he was like, good joke that you left on my and it makes no sense and the end result is absolutely zero accountability.
0: You know what's funny about this movie is that the main characters who are Almost exclusively men, I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say. I think that's right. They're all competing along all these very superficial dimensions. Yes. The best haircut, the coolest looking glasses. Yes. The nicest suits. Seating, if I recall. Seating and dine, at restaurants, and at, restaurant. at the nicest restaurants. Real and, thing that people care oh, a lot about. Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely. And the end result of all that competition, business cards and so forth, is that they all just look exactly the same. Right. They end up with like, slightly finer versions of the The same exact exact haircut and they all just kind of look the same the main character is played by christian bale Mm -hmm. okay but there's like all these other characters in the movie that he gets confused for by some of the characters and i understand because he looks exactly like that there's this intensely conformist Mm -hmm. approach to it and i think it's a real thing about finance culture as it existed Back then, I'm a little bit less sure of it now. But I worked mm-hmm. in finance for my first three years out of college, and it was definitely like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we weren't going around serial killing and all that stuff. Are you sure? But remember, what I do you, <remember? laughs> you want to confess right yeah, now? Exactly. Would you believe me if I <laughs> did? You know, um, it's but, not funny. Sorry. Like in terms of enforcing a very particular way of being while you're right. in the office, and even frankly outside of the office, everything ends up becoming right commoditized in a very amusing way
1: absolutely and that's the part that's so not a joke right that's so real like you're saying i think you're right that today it is a different landscape to some extent but that mold is so powerful and like the pull to it is so powerful that it's hard to move away from and like that's where this whole world that we live in now that's where we came from like there's a sense now that we're having this great renegotiation right we're doing all of this to kind of Reform our about our careers, you mean with yeah, the what do we owe our employers? What do our employers owe us? And to what extent do I show up as myself at work? And I think I think a lot about this because a couple years ago I was like, Oh, I should conform. I'm this is such a not a good thread to go down. Please, please
0: go down it. Okay. That's okay. If it, if it was How inspired, much time we got? if it was inspired by the movie, I want to hear it. It
1: was not inspired by the movie, but it's relevant to the movie. And you can all cut right. all of this if you want. Kind of when we met, I was in this phase where I was like, Okay. When I went on TV, everyone would be like, "Great job on TV. I didn't hear anything you said. You were on mute, but you looked great." And I found that really upsetting. Oh, on
0: CNBC and, by the way. This is a on thing Bloomberg, that yeah. or on Bloomberg TV. Yeah. So, we should explain to listeners who don't spend all day watching business television, very common on trading floors, mm-hmm. on Wall Street. for Across people the country, to, across the world. Yeah, to have the TVs of business television on, but with the sound off. And only if something massive breaks, do they then turn on the sound to see what's going yeah. on, right? The so, only
1: moments uh, it's ever been unmuted was when Carl Icahn and Bill Ackman got in a real fight yes, on CNBC. When, That's the when, only time.
0: When there are fights and things yeah. breaking, right? But you and I, as journalists, have uh, traditionally been on some of these shows. And we'll get notes from people who are like, hey, I saw you on TV. And we're like, but did you hear us? Do and you know like, what I said? Of course not That's is the not answer. What right. Matters. Right. 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 So anyway, so yeah, right. take so with that explained. Tell us yes. what, what happened?
1: So I would go on TV and you know have my like full face of makeup that you know was plastered onto me moments before. Bless them, they do great work, but it is um staggering the difference. And and I've been on Fox Business too, and the same thing happens where you you <laughs> leave the stage and peel the fake eyelashes off, and everyone's like, wow, amazing <laughs> job. Your face was on television and like no one cares what you said. And I kind of started associating this with like I was in my late twenties and I was just just figuring out about like misogyny. (laughs)
0: <laughs> like, okay
1: and I was like wait a minute why are people responding differently when I pitch this story than when my colleague pitched this exact same story with the exact same sourcing huh that's so odd your male
0: colleague for example it, yes.
1: yes quite and I struggle you know you very rarely get A-B tests but I got a couple and I finally was like alright I think there's something to this misogyny thing I think it might be real <laughs> um <laughs> I'm a slow learner <laughs> and I, <laughs> I have to have this empirical interaction with something in order to really <laughs> arrive there but um but i was like reverse backlashing to that and i was like oh if i just like delete the things about myself that are feminine then I will, the, people won't notice.
0: That then you'll fit in. That I'll
1: fit in. And so I was like trying for the Patrick Bateman model.
0: Oh, my God. That, <laughs> that's had what glasses. you reached for. That's incredible. I had
1: the trap I mean, not literally, but it is, you know, I didn't murder anyone. I should say that up front.
0: But man, was it tempting. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> no, uh, I would not. Uh, no, but it was like that mold is so powerful and it's hard to escape. And it's like what everyone wants you to do and wants you to be. I discovered later that don't, um, get the Patrick Beaman glasses and, and the trousers. Et
0: Here, here's something interesting about American Psycho that's related to what you just said. It is obviously based on the Brett Easton Ellis mm-hmm. book, but it was directed by Mary Heron, who co-wrote the script with Guinevere Turner. So two women were we got essentially in the at, house. at the helm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think of to what extent this was A female commentary on this intensely male culture, Mm -hmm. this intensely, like, hyper-masculine culture of the 1980s. Yes,
1: extremely that. That's actually so interesting. I do think it—I hadn't thought of it as the female gaze, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing to thing, it is you know, that that's what right. it is you're right now that you've pointed that out i love that and yeah. and, and what a commentary
0: <laughs> what a <laughs> quite a commentary uh something else happens in the movie which is interesting which i also think is related uh to the 1980s in particular and maybe the time since which is that one of the things that's commoditized is like the realm of the human it's not just like the realm of finance and business and products and the markets mm-hmm. but for example you know who shows up on your arm, right? Mm-hmm. Your fiancé or your potential spouse. The quote-unquote liberal ideas that they throw around in conversation just to signal right. that they're in the right at right. dinner, but then when the guys are just palling around, they're showing a, different... a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of misogyny there, right? So it's just like your, even your viewpoints, your cultural and political viewpoints become things to be traded.
1: And is that right? different today at all?
0: I don't know. I don't uh, think but, it is. But, but what's interesting is, to think about whether or not it started back then or if it just intensified back then. But it's definitely yeah. in this movie.
1: Yes. It's know? beautifully that's that's a really good point, and it's beautifully done in the movie. I think it's a very elegant like the whole movie is actually like I don't I'm not a big murder show person. <laughs> I'm I feel like I get enough like bad <laughs> just stuff in my clear, eyes. Yeah. Right. I'm not pro-murder and I don't I'm I'm not like a violence TV person, but this was definitely one where it was worth blinking slowly through the murder parts to to get to the I mean it is really incisive about the ways in which people trade these things and yeah people and are accessories each other now, and right? yes yeah. quite quite and I think that's not untrue today I think there's a lot of that that's still very alive and well
0: something that I think you and I both realized while we were trying to think of the right movie for this category was that movies are just not that good at explaining finance they're good at capturing the culture of finance and there are movies like margin call mm-hmm. like the big short that get into the culture and they get into like the particular sociology of Wall Street and of financial institutions not great at actually communicating what's happening in finance the big short I think maybe comes the closest to succeeding mm-hmm. but even then there were some inaccuracies they were necessary and I'm not even like mad about them because it's a movie it's trying to get across a feel rather than being like you know a classroom whiteboard discussion or something
1: right but in order to feel satisfied at the end of one of these movies i feel like the point is to come away understanding and to some extent i feel like the big short you know first of all i should say i did watch that with people who structured the products that blew up so i'm a little bit biased sure but if you have to put margot robbie in a hot tub. (laughs) to try to get people's attention to explain a thing that's actually quite interesting, you've already failed.
0: Yeah. It's hard, though, to explain finance in a way that's interesting, I think, in a movie. I think it can definitely be done in a book and you yourself are like the master at it, right? Thank you. Great book, The Bond King, how to... What, what's How One
1: Man Made a Market, built an <laughs> empire, and lost it all. We're
0: gonna say that at least three more times. Uh, we're gonna finish it. I'm really that in, enjoying that. more times. <laughs> thank you for letting yeah. me do that. Um, but it's hard to do that in a movie and even those movies that I just mentioned got a lot wrong on the finance. Margin Call, The Big Short, I think those are the two big examples yeah. from the last, like, I don't know, decade and a half or so. Margin Call, like, you know, compressed but... the
1: entirety of the crisis in eight <laughs> hours. Is that right?
0: <laughs> Something like that, like, into, like, an overnight <laughs> Boy, thing. Boy, it was stressful. Right? And yet, like, the way they portrayed the particular hierarchy <laughs> of mm-hmm. a Wall Street bank was just phenomenal. Jeremy Irons, that might have been my single favorite Acting in yeah. a finance movie that I've literally ever seen, right? That's in Margin Call, and he plays the CEO of this bank. Um, and the way it the shows, character. yeah, and the way it shows like something being run up the chain. You know, yeah, uh, was was fantastic. And how in one and room the nerves of that, you know, yeah. And how in one room, you know, a middle manager will be treated as like the all important person. Right. And then in the next room, which is the more important room, he's reduced. The, he's the into peon. like childlike yeah. behavior, right. you know, and it's just and it. And I think it gets that right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I think these these movies just don't always do an awesome job. So they do sometimes resort to these, what you might call cheap or gauche tricks, like putting- Facile
1: and condescending.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that too. Like putting Margot Robbie uh, in a bathtub and whatnot. So, I forgot to say
1: sexist, but I guess that was implied.
0: <laughs> I think people get it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think I think <laughs> Do they get it, okay. No,
1: I'm sorry. I'm fine. <laughs>
0: uh, anyways. Okay, fantastic. That's the movie. Uh, let's move on to your choice for a book to talk about. What did you choose?
1: I picked- Lake Success by Gary Steingart.
0: Okay. The very well-known author, Gary Steingart. Very
1: famous. Like, I don't know, ludicrous levels of fame. (laughs) Um, He actually, I met him at a party in 2013. I attended this party with a source. And he was just, he happened to be there. And I accosted him, as one does. And it turns out he's very lovely and very used to this. And he was like, oh, you know about money. I'm actually researching for this book that I'm working on. A novel. A novel about money, about finance. At the time, it was about a hedge fund. Like, the the plot shifted as he worked on it as (laughs) – often happens. But I think um, it was actually really fun because that sort of we started going to various meetings with my sources. I introduced him to all these sources to help him oh, research, cool. so to you help him
0: participated in the yeah. making of this. novel. Yes, right. it was my
1: honor. It was so fun. Tell, tell people what the book's about. So the book is about a hedge fund manager who like loses it. It's set in 2016 as, you know, the the kind of Trump presidency is ascendant and the whole nation is, you know... On was, edge a little bit, you yeah, could say. Yeah, I was sure. going to say chirping very loudly. I don't think that makes any sense. <laughs> um, there was just a lot of agita in the country. Yeah, a lot of chirping, <laughs> I A lot think. of chirping sure. loudly. And so the hedge fund manager, like, gets in this spat and ends up getting on a Greyhound bus and traveling across the United States in part to escape his life, but also to, like, see what's going on and just, like, experience new things and kind of run away from his problems, all these things. So and he runs
0: away from his hedge fund then, this hedge yes, fund manager. Yes, okay. yes.
1: And, you know, the the book follows his wife and their um, their child, who's on the spectrum, and oh, also Oh, so he's follows. married, he's and, married. He, and he yes. still gets on a
0: Greyhound bus and leaves and his leaves. family behind. Yes. Okay.
1: And, you know, he finds his way back, but it's this whole, like, very pained narrative, and what I loved about it is the, the kind of horrifying thing of touring Gary around, of like introducing him to people that I had known for years at that point, who I talked to about the markets, and I just remember we were at this one hedge fund, and I, you know I introduced him to the manager, and we were just doing a literal tour of the office, and Gary's like, "Where are all the women?" Mm. And I like hadn't noticed. I had just been, you know, there's like the cluster of women over in this corner that do, you know, sales and business development and compliance and not the cool trading stuff we wouldn't ever let. And like I only introduced him to like my goodest sources. Like I didn't introduce him to like the ones that I find horrifying. So the fact that he still was finding, you know, it it was really kind of
0: this huge gender imbalance in the room that
1: I was so used to at that point. And I, so that's that why you hadn't saw.
0: really noticed it yourself, because you'd been in those rooms for so long. For so long. Yeah. And
1: it wasn't even that long at that point. It was, you know, what, five, four years at that point? Like, I, should, how quickly I acclimated. But it, it was really—and, you know, we we went to dinner with various sources or lunch, and they would be like, well, you know— I want to get that generational wealth. And Gary's like, okay, put a number on that. <laughs> and just watching him like Generational scribble, wealth, like
0: the kind of money that, that you these can't guys get rid of. considered yes. to be money that would last through the generations, you know, grandkids, that once you great you et cetera.
1: Yes, right. it's robust. They're never going to have to yeah. worry for generations and generations. So
0: what numbers were they giving him?
1: I mean, it was dumb. It was obviously <laughs> billions, you know? Like okay. Gary was like, well, okay, like, where are we talking? Like 25, you know, like kind of messing with them. <laughs> like normal
0: person money? And right. they look
1: at him like, are you okay? Like, the ability to joke. Like, a lot of them think that they're funny. Don't we all? But they're they're joking with Gary. They also, like, I felt like a lot of them were their worst selves, you know? Like, were again, they trying to show off a little bit? They were trying to show off. They were really they just nervous in front stuff. of Gary
0: Steingart, you know?
1: Completely. But they also, I think he's one of them in some odd way, where... Some people interpreted, like, super sad true love story as, like, an anti-Obama. I don't understand, but there's some weird— That's an
0: earlier Gary Steingart. uh,
1: Yeah, people had interpreted his work as, like, conservative somehow, which kind of doesn't make sense if you read his— work i mean i'm sure it's open to our oh, interpretation I see. but this is
0: very interesting though they, they think that he is ideologically perhaps in sync with open them to so they their, were yes. so they would say things that yes. they may not say he if would tell they me yes knew that actually he was yes. satirizing or criticizing that worldview or something exactly
1: and he okay. would tell me stories where like i knew the parties involved and it's not the same stuff that they would tell me and like that's like indicative that's the same as your american psycho you know the conversation changes depending on who you're with Anyway, it was just – it was it was a really kind of bizarro upside-down world experience, but super fun. And, like, I'm very grateful that I got to do it because that kind of upside-down world, I was like, oh, maybe this is the right-side-up way. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's very interesting. So what what sort of takeaways do you think he got from, like, the world of finance, from having gone to all these meetings with hedge fund managers and then done all the research itself mm-hmm. and talking to you about it that, that he then put into the book?
1: I think he found a really fundamental sadness where – the competition is the is the entire game, and there's no way out. You can't opt out of competing with your fellow hedge fund managers and your fellow traders. You can't there's no if you opt out, you've lost. But they're in this like gated community of competition where they lose such sight of the rest of the world. such of perspective, what else is of, out there of the other options that of they can also like, suffering in, through
0: or like, Ways that they could actually enjoy their astonishing luck and fortune.
1: It's not not accessible to so many of them. Like, I know a couple that have mentally escaped and that, like, know they're lucky and are happy, but that's so rare. That's the exception. And that, I think, was a really incisive point, too, where he's just, like, witnessing this, like— The same one-upmanship in American Psycho manifesting through whiskey bottles that are, like, important and old or whatever and, like, watches. He's very into watch culture. Like, all of these ways in which people find an arena to compete against each other so needlessly, but that's what they want to do. That's what's fun. and. The sadness of it is that it can be at the expense. It can cloud out everything else. And not only that loss of perspective and the inability to kind of understand what normal people deal with and, like, what the rest of the country is like, they can't escape that gated community, but also the idea that it just makes them actually miserable.
0: Yeah, they don't end up happy in this hyper-competitive world, even— when they win the competition, because right. if anything, when your entire life is about competition, even winning a competition just it's makes you kind of well, it makes you also sad and lonely and wondering why, yeah. why there aren't more people to compete against now. And right? then you're like, that like was like a that. lame.
1: Like then you're like, oh, that was not a good competition. Like that was in some way not the right arena. If I won, right, <laughs> there's this this inability to accept victory,
0: right, to enjoy it, to, to enjoy, enjoy it. you know your position yeah. in your position in the world. Um, one thing I'll say about Gary Steingart, I have not read lake success yet it's so good but i did read his most recent novel called our country friends which is about this group of people who essentially go to this one guy's house like in upstate new york Mm -hmm. during the early months of covid Mm -hmm. and they just hang out on like his grounds where there's all these bungalows where everybody sleeps all of the people in this group are these kind of like impressive, very smart, creative types. Mm -hmm. And they bring with them all of the sort of resentments that accumulate over time because they're all roughly middle-aged and maybe even a little bit older. They're in like their 50s. -hmm. And he's so good at capturing these characters that I actually found long stretches of the book a little bit uncomfortable to read. It's like he's too good at that, right? And what I wrote in my brief tweet review of the book after I finished it was that after I read it, I wasn't sure if it made me want to hug my friends closely or disavow them all and spend the rest (laughs) of my days staring at a blank wall in splendid isolation. Because when you get like this category of people together and they think so much about their places in life relative to those who they're close to, Mm -hmm. you get all this terrible passive aggressive behavior. You get all of these accumulated resentments and it really like poisons Mm -hmm. the way you act towards people that- You You say you love and that you might actually love as well, but it really taints that love in a very sort of depressing way. And he's very good at capturing that, is what I would say. It's
1: horrible. It's a beautiful book, and it's one of those—sometimes you open a book and it's just like, oh, thank God, I'm in good hands. Like, you know he knows what he's doing from the exact first— page. Yes. And it just it feels nice. I will say what you just identified, though, is the same thing we were just talking about in finance, this inability to accept success and an inability to let go of those accumulated resentments. Yeah. So it's like we're saying it's about finance, but of course, you know, it can be applicable
0: to anything, really. Yeah. It's just it it is very intense in finance because you're talking about literally billions of dollars.
1: Yes. The stakes are higher
0: being for society. In some cases, billions of dollars could be perceived to be inadequate by some of these people right. because the other guy has tens of billions exactly.
1: of dollars. The actual zeros are know. meaningless except in relation to other people's zeros.
0: Exactly. Let's go on to song. And we're not going to spend that much time on this because, frankly, it's just hard to get songs about finance. I had
1: some pretty pitiful submissions here. <laughs> My, I went with first idea, best idea.
0: Okay. Which is? <clears throat>
1: <laughs> I fly like paper get high like planes if you catch uh, me in the corner you can In case people the money. are confused right now
0: this is what we're talking about MIA's paper planes, Sometimes I've been sitting on planes every step So wait a minute. Well, why did you pick this song by MIA? Which is it's catchy, by the way. It's so good. Great it's, song, yeah.
1: underrated hit. Um, I don't know that I had a reason. <laughs> it's what got in my head, and it's so catchy that certainly no other song like it eclipsed all other songs, and I could no longer think.
0: It is a very catchy pop tune. It's beautiful. It it's yeah, very. Yeah, it's it's well a done. great song. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, as a portrayal of finance maybe it leaves a little something to be desired right like it's not really what it's about uh, it's it's not but, really what it's about yeah but, but i but, found the threads to be true yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i
1: don't know what that means
0: <laughs> but i realized as we were going through some possible ideas for this is that there's a lot of songs that are about like the dangers of money and what mm-hmm. it can't get you not having money it. can't buy you love mm-hmm. etc there's a lot of songs about having a ton of money and explaining, and what, you're yeah. it, right? explaining songs, what you're doing with it, right? <laughs> explaining
1: what you're doing with it. Songs bragging
0: about money, right?
1: That's beautiful. Yeah. put.
0: <laughs> yeah. Makes it sound like Let there's these explain. songs that are just yeah. these lists.
1: They're like, all right, and then I, yeah, <laughs> about <laughs> the Benz, okay, and then
0: I. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it's very it, the, the way I described it was was sounds like it's a very like deadened version of these songs. I'm so a lot of these songs are very fun, version, you know? Honestly, songs just. Turned out not to be great for portraying finance. Well, I will say
1: I forgot about this one that's been in my head for like a year. Mm -hmm. I've been listening in my head to a lot of Alabama. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. And um, there's a line from Song of the South. Um, Somebody told us Wall Street fell,
0: but we were so poor that we couldn't tell. Okay. hmm That's a good line. Thank you. Right. I think we can find some it. I think yeah. we can find some good lines and some songs. Yeah, and then that's about it. I mean but there's a lot of like it.
1: economic there it, it's pretty um, it's a it's a robust and nuanced um, analysis Let's in there. Let's just but...
0: throw this one to our listeners. Like get in touch. <laughs> Please, hello at and tell us if you find some good songs about finance itself and not mm-hmm. just about money. Okay, moving on. T V series.
1: Uh-huh. To me, clear winner. Succession. Okay. This actually came up at a reading I just did in Charleston, South Carolina. One of the audience members came up and was like, what do you think about Succession? Is it accurate? And I was like, yes. I mean, it's the best. They have all these people consulting on it, first of all, that helped to kind of Preserve people who are that knowledgeable about
0: finance. Yeah, we got to tell people what this is about, by the way, because not everybody's oh, seen it. Oh, yeah, uh, I forget. So, HBO's Succession mm-hmm. is about boardroom battles Drama, and things like that mm-hmm. fighting for control of a big company. It's that a, kind of a dynastic
1: thing. family, like media empire, and the children are squabbling trying to like one up each other and get in their father's good graces so that they like inherit the company and and a good, you know, managerial position.
0: And they use finance tactics and strategies from finance to try to gain control.
1: Yes. And I think I should note that Gary actually consulted on it. Um, Gary
0: Steingart? That's correct. The one
1: and only. I think what it gets so right is, again, the pettiness, the like boardroominess and the The ways in which people have to read these minute changes in kind of like the direction of the wind and seating charts and, you know, okay, I'm on the plane with dad, but you're not. That's a good sign for me. Or I got pushed to do this talk or, you know, there are various ways in which favor can manifest and they have to read the tea leaves and figure out, you know, who's winning versus whom. And I think that is all very accurate
0: and because it's a tv series and doesn't have to get everything into a 2-hour window like a movie does.
1: Mm-hmm. Movies
0: are so short. There's more space to explain yes. the financial mechanisms involved, right? How mm-hmm. do you how do you think it does at portraying actual finance? as it's weaponized, as it's used in these battles?
1: I think the weaponization part is perfectly accurate. I can't say that I focus too heavily on the, like, actual financial mechanics, but I think they're pretty good. I mean, it's a bit muddy. They're, like, a kind of, like— There was some, like— complicated maneuver in which their debt was relevant and I was just like I, you know what I'm going to kind of suspend my knowledge okay, and just let it go because it's a work of art and I don't mind like it didn't bother me like it sounded directionally fine and I think some of the mechanics were a bit muddy but it's like okay that's fine let's just do this okay let's All move right. on you know it's not like billion sells itself on being right about Billions, these things.
0: Billions the movie or excuse the me TV Billions the TV on, yeah, show from, Showtime. on Showtime. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that's great at like they they absolutely get the specifics and the structures and they talk about these things with specificity and like <laughs> delight. Yeah. And 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 assume a lot of knowledge I feel like. I mean all of my sources watch it. So that's not an incorrect assumption. But Succession it's just like Secondary because as you say, it's it's a tool, it's a weapon. The finance, the structuring is a way to express again who's in favor, who's gonna win. It's these battles. It's like the cudgel, you know?
0: Yeah, occasionally on billions, the finance is front and center. Absolutely. Okay. And whereas you're saying that in succession, it's there, it's done pretty well, but it's used in the service of the drama, the narrative of the I show so. itself.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um I wanna say, like, I'm looking it up and I think this is true, the proxy battle stuff on okay. succession feels completely accurate and it's like,
0: this is when like, uh, shareholder when meetings. shareholder meetings yeah. happen and different people on the board are fighting each other for Fighting control. for
1: seats and power, yes. yeah. And there's a lot in the most recent season about like who gets one seat versus two seats and what that means. They do a good job of making it just the air where you don't, need to dig into it they're not sitting there putting margot robbie in a hot tub it's just the characters they do a good (laughs) job of like exposition of the material just by the way the characters act and talk about it which is so nice it's just woven
0: into everything very nice okay uh let's move on to the next category which is one that i think you're going to feel strongly about it's a painting finance as portrayed in paintings
1: So I went a little ham on this category as (laughs) you may. Well, this one and the the, um, sculpture one, because there are a lot of options, actually. I've been delighted by the way in which the art world approaches finance because it's sort of self-hating, this relationship they have with finance.
0: Because there's a lot of finance in the arts themselves. Yes. Right? I mean, you need people buying and selling things. Right. Right. Classically. You need customers. You need patrons. You need money. Sure.
1: And they... Every, I mean, I feel like everyone in the art world understands so clearly how everything works in a way that I feel like when I started out in my job, you know, I had a studio in Bushwick and I had all these friends in the art art world and um, they would talk to me about, you know, this was like during Occupy as well. So there was this like backdrop of, of kind of.
0: Yeah, let me explain all those words to people who aren't from New York. Uh, Bushwick is a neighborhood <laughs> in Brooklyn where you Bushwick had- Bushwick is
1: where the art studios right, where are. You had, were. Where you had an
0: art studio. That's and right. Occupy Wall Street was happening around the time, around 10? 2010, 2011, like the aftermath of the financial crisis. And, and it was and this expression about, of
1: anger right, and the saying, 1%. we had been, you know, we got sold out, Wall Street got bailed out. It was this feeling that, you know, the way in which we handled the financial crisis was to fix the financial part of it and and, oh, like, reward everyone who had been invested in the stock market and who sold all the products that went sour and did just nothing for the people who lost their jobs and were underwater on their homes and paid the taxes that helped to fund the bailouts, yada, yada. Um, and I think that the the coverage of Wall Street, of Occupy Wall Street at the time, was, like, sort of um, dismissive. And I say that as having been kind of a part of it. I remember going down to Zuccotti Park, where it was largely based in, in New York, and being like, this is kind of big. And I didn't cover, you know, my... Beat. You mean the
0: media coverage was sort of condescending?
1: Yeah, it just was a little, to the extent that it paid attention to it, it was a little dismissive. It just didn't seem to, it was like, look at these dirty hipsters I in know, the park. I totally agree, <laughs> and I
0: remember specifically Erin Burnett of CNN going down there and interviewing some folks and kind of laughing in their faces while yeah. she was interviewing them. And even if you don't agree yeah. with whatever Occupy Wall Street was saying... Uh, it was a big movement that ended up sparking you know protests and other things uh, in cities all around the world it was something to take seriously and i think it did reflect for a lot of people yeah. some genuine anger i think
1: it absolutely did and i think in my reporting in recent years it's hard to overstate how culturally important that is how how much that's shaped the world view of people in that generation, of people who were coming up in that era, you know, people who were in high school and college then, they were like, wait, what happened in the crisis? Like, I've talked to people who are, you know, active socialists now who are like, I can remember the moment when I was radicalized. Mm. I was reading about the mortgage-backed security stuff. And I was like, wait, what? And then, you know, I I just think the like kind of long-term effects of, of Occupy are understated. Okay. And that we, we as kind of a society, like, those seeds are, are you know, the, the flowers are with us now.
0: So br- bring this back to uh, the point of Right. The so, arts.
1: okay. So I was in, you know, my studio in Bushwick chatting with my art friends, and they're all telling me, you know, with this Occupy kind of lens, they were all involved pretty much. They were all there in in the park. Some of them got arrested when they cleared it out. It was a whole thing. And, you know, I worked at Bloomberg News at the time, and, and I talked to my sources, and I was kind of in the, like, absorption phase of my career where I – Sort of had to take on. I think. I think I had to take on. I was just trying to figure out what the world was that I covered, and the world that I covered was narrow. It was finance and bond. You know, the bond market, credit, and it wasn't like, what are the societal implications of the credit derivative index that you cover going up or down a given day? Like, that next level was not part of my delineated universe. So I was kind of like, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what you're. I feel like you're a little uninformed (laughs) here. No, like there the work of Bill Powhida, if you look at some of his mapping of power structures, this is this is the thing that I love that that he's done. And he's done a bunch of different iterations where he just kind of does like, it's not a flow chart, it's like a a map of connection and power and like who matters and these inflection points in our economy in finance and how those interact and the kind of culpability of the art world in participating in that, in accepting the largesse of these financial patrons and, you know, people that come to auction and, and buy the works.
0: Tell people who Bill Palhaida is, by the way. He's your choice. For He's my the, Yeah, so, so the work of Bill Palhaida is your choice for yes. what people should see, paintings uh, portraying finance.
1: He does these, like, sketches, these paintings of— like, pieces of paper tacked to a wall with writing on them. So it's a little bit of a, how do you say normally, trompe
0: <laughs> What? <laughs> I don't know. Trompe <laughs> Trumploy. Trompe Okay. I don't know what that is.
1: Oh, it's a um, trick of the eye. It's a, it's like a magic eye. No, okay. it's, it looks like a real piece of paper tacked to the wall, but it's a painting of a piece of paper tacked to the wall.
0: I gotcha. Okay. I'm, so, I'm with you now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you for that interlude. Um, and in these, you know, he'll list, like... It's like a screed about, like, the art world and its interactions with money and power. It's a screed about how we allow all the things that we allow in these markets. And, like, they know the better than anybody, I feel like. There's this—the stakes are are really high because as an artist, if you have no one buying your work, like, you know, I hope you have a second job. But it's also— there's an ability to be honest in the art world because the stakes are so high and also so low. Like, if you're already not making money, like, go for it. I think Bill, you know, makes a good living and he's, like, a successful artist. But that's, I feel like, a a bit, you know, it's obviously the exception because very few people do make it in the art world. But it's also, like, he's speaking truth in a really uncomfortable way. And uh, How so? Well— Talking about these things makes people uncomfortable. Talking about
0: where money Talking comes about from, the, the fact money, that you yes. need to make money. And the fact in that, you know, you do. the
1: art world has all of these principled stances. And you see this, especially recently with like NFTs, where it was, oh, great, yay, we can finally monetize digital art. But the response in the community was also, I think, about half of the response was like, this is environmentally unforgivable. Like you want to monetize today and burn the world for the enormous electrical, you know, energy consumption needs of of cryptocurrencies for your today art. Like, OK, congratulations. Let's like, tell people
0: real quick. NFTs stands non-fungible for non-fungible tokens. Yes. These are digital receipts that are affiliated with the work of art. Yes. There's only one. They cannot be reproduced. That's why they're called non-fungible. They're not
1: fungible famously. And
0: yeah. And so if you if you have one of these NFTs, you can trade it. Digitally. You can yeah. buy it and you can sell it. And then yeah. you can say, for example, I am the only person who owns an NFT that's affiliated with Mary Child's latest bill painting or whatever, <laughs> right? Bill's bills <laughs> bills. bills paintings, right. Yeah. Uh, and then uh because it's scarce and because, for yeah. example, you might have given it your own stamp of approval, like, yeah, that's the NFT you that's want, right. yeah. then people might buy and sell it. When you're saying is that by bringing all of this onto like the electronic platform onto the
1: blockchain yeah
0: that it that it leads to like these environmental costs because it takes up a lot of energy to keep these things going to mine right. cryptocurrency, and so yeah. there's this trade-off between like NFTs can be a way for artists to make money. They're yes, a very clever great. way for them Love to it. make yes. money. And that's great. But it has these other costs.
1: It was a kind of a violent schism in the art world, I feel like, where some people embraced it and they were like, Great, I can eat. Like this is wonderful. I can go <laughs> make money actually, especially for digital artists, because there had been this kind of tension of how do you actually sell a JPEG that, you know, is sort of just you can right click it and save it. Like, how is that at all scarce or precious? Or it just had a really weird um interaction with the real world. and the physical art world and the monetization thereof. And then the other half of the art community very strongly felt that this was reckless. I think a lot of artists feel this responsibility. They see their role in the world and their role in society much more clearly than I think a lot of other industries. They feel more responsibility maybe. And, you know, you see this too with like all the Nan Golden protests at the Sackler Wings of saying, you know, you can't, you can no longer accept the Sackler money due to the opioid epidemic that has murdered, you know, so many people in this country and elsewhere. Yeah, the
0: Sackler family that made all its money. That made in all of its money
1: from opioids. You know there's been this ba- they have so many wings around the world that are named, you know, Sackler or whatever the because Sackler of all the money. The Sackler
0: Gallery of Art or whatever. Exactly. Sure. Yeah.
1: And you know a lot of places are renegotiating those and trying to figure out ways out of that and to like de Sackler, but that's because of the pressure that a lot of individual artists put on these institutions to basically distance themselves to disavow and 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 get these rid are the it.
0: themes in Bill Palhaida's work. This yes. uncomfortable relationship yes. between money and all the costs of interacting in a market essentially exactly
1: what you're accepting when you accept money
0: yeah i guess (laughs) so i I love that it makes people uncomfortable and that is definitely what we turn to for artists much harder is sort of coming up with just a better way and then championing that because even if you take what might be considered a very idealistic approach to financing art Mm -hmm. let's say you you consider that to be public funding so money from the government Right, right. Or you, you consider that to be an
1: unbesmirched government, though.
0: <laughs> right, right. Or money from <laughs> patrons, you know, even even very sort of who did not of...
1: murder anyone,
0: <laughs> who didn't murder anybody, but who and who might be like very fair-minded, very honestly generous patrons. You're still turning to a cabal, a small cabal of very powerful people mm-hmm. for financing, right? Right. Whereas you could actually argue that just a very wide open marketplace is the small d democratic platform mm-hmm. you want right? right where it's like you're still finding the people that your artwork provides a lot of joy to okay they're able to spend the money on it and it makes it so that even a small artist can find possibly a surprisingly big audience but also somebody who's just doing very niche work can find their also niche audience of people who really love it and mm-hmm. appreciate the work they're doing so that can bring its own discomfort, like operating in a marketplace and selling it to a lot of people. And I think people throw around words like commercialism, consumerism, uh-huh. like they're always bad things. And maybe they are. But I'm saying I don't know that they're necessarily worse things than <laughs> a public model or a government finance model right, or, a all patron, money is dirty. or a patron model. Yeah. Right.
1: So there's this really popular artist right now. And there's this kind of story in the art world that... The gallery that represents him, the owner will come in to his studio, which is normal, I think, and be like, why don't you add more of this one thing, this like thing that you do that the people like and will get us a higher price for selling your work. And the thing that this is identifying is there's some like infection of the purity of his work. That's the suggestion, right? Because of this commercial interest, his gallery literally weighing in on the composition of these paintings because like for commercial gain, for monetary gain. And you think about, I I say this all the time, I'm like obsessed with the fact that like a Basquiat with red or a crown goes for so much more than a Basquiat without those things. And it's like, that's the good thing. So if Basquiat were alive today, we'd be like more crowns, more crowns, which of course would not had the intended effect; it would devalue the, <laughs> crown the crowns, ranging. right? Yeah. But it is this like this idea that that you can't have commercial interference with your work, with the production of your work. But really, like yeah, it's hard to avoid that. Yeah. yeah, and there's so much art now that's like overtly commercial. You could maybe trace that back to uh, Damien Hirst and like the uh, what is it?
0: Like the shark thing?
1: I was thinking the diamond skull. Okay. Probably worth tens of millions
0: of dollars. Definitely worth (laughs) tens of millions of dollars,
1: for sure. But, yeah, it's like, you know, that was like in some sense a performance piece, too, where he was like disintermediating the auction houses and taking you know being like i'm doing a commercial sale because I, it's funny and interesting and look at my process of doing this sale and it's like
0: bro you're making it you're just lot making bank. Yeah, <laughs> like, a lot of money I, right. what a good performance which good for you right. but like that's you know that's what you're doing you're yes. not fooling me okay. right
1: and it's like i had a, a studio mate uh an artist friend in 2010 around occupy one of the ones who was arrested and he was doing this performance where he was overt he was publishing his uh, finances called dollar sign that was the name of the project. And partly because of this project, I knew that he didn't have a lot of money and I was worried about him. And I was like, hey, man, like, can I can I buy some of your work? Like, is there is there something that I can can buy of yours? I've been meaning to like now seems like a great time. I have a little cash. Can I please do this? And he was like, oh, that would actually be great because you work for Bloomberg News and I can accept your money, but it's blood money because it's from the banks.
0: Okay. Well, and that's I was like, oh, well that kind of simple. A simple, the wind my a simple uh, no thanks would have worked too. Yeah. But okay. Or a yes, thanks. <laughs> or a yes, thanks. <laughs> yeah, take the money. And right. like,
1: I still worked at a journalistic institution that like, yeah. you know, my job was to reveal things that the banks didn't necessarily want me revealing. You know, I told this story one time to Salman Rushdie and he was like what he didn't know was you were stabbing the beast from inside its belly. And I was like <laughs> Hell yeah. I was stabbing the piece <laughs> inside its belly. It. No, you're right.
0: <laughs> I thought about that a lot. Uh, I also asked if you wouldn't mind choosing a contemporary art piece because <laughs> this is a world you know so well and so what did you choose?
1: Okay. My pick is Sarah Mayohas which okay. is actually just Fully piggybacking on Matt Levine. I think this would be Matt's pick. Matt Levine he, is, uh, of course, a columnist, uh, at, columnist Bloomberg opinion, at Bloomberg very Opinion. Very widely yeah. followed and massively beloved by people in and outside of finance. Yes,
0: and a friend of yours, I And think.
1: A, one of my yeah. dear friends, yes. Yeah. Um, and he, it's like she does these paintings of, like, stock charts. They're just lines.
0: Yeah. They're charts lines. of individual stocks. It's beautiful. Yeah. But doesn't she go beyond that? Doesn't she actually trade in the stocks and then see and watch
1: that line wiggle yeah
0: and then see if if her trade actually moved the stock price and then she can see if it goes up or down in the yeah. immediate aftermath, right? Yeah. So she's she's probably trading in some pretty uh, small stocks. Penny, where I would yeah a small or a small <laughs> purchase uh, might be enough to move. Might the actually stock price. show up
1: and and right. create a nice chart for her. Right,
0: but, she's not responsible for tanking Netflix stock. Not recently. Today. That's not yeah. what she. Sarah no. Mayo Hessen cannot be blamed. She for She disavows.
1: Right? No, I think what's interesting is that like, is stock trading not a performance of beauty? Like, is this not just an aesthetic pursuit?
0: Literally, it's referred to as a Keynesian beauty contest sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think you could say that, you know.
1: I just love that. It's just, like, it's boiling it down to this fundamental performance of engaging and, and like, fiddling with it. And... That's the beauty. That's it, the fun.
0: This is one where we will post links to the work on the show notes to this episode because mm-hmm. you kind of have to see all of the different stock charts that she drew on so a yeah. wall, right, together to get the full effect, I think. completely. But it's just a very interesting project where she just kind of sits in the middle of the gallery mm-hmm. making pushing trades, yeah. looking at stock charts, essentially, pushing mm-hmm. buttons, and then something happens and then she she draws. She, yeah. she draws it, or she prints it, and she puts it on, on yeah. the wall. Yeah, you know,
1: it's really nice. There's like a starkness too. It's just like a line. It's it's lovely. Yeah, it's
0: one line. It's a very minimalist very sort minimal. of looking thing. Kind of yeah. soothing. Or minimal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very cool. I want to close with an article you recently wrote about art, actually, mm-hmm. in Town and Country magazine, and it's titled "The Thrilla in Laguna: mm-hmm. A Billionaire, His Neighbors, and Their Battle Over Art." This is Partly about Bill Gross, who was the subject of your book, The Bond King. That's right. And... How one man made a market,
1: built an empire, and lost it all.
0: <laughs> yes. And the fight that Bill Gross had uh, at his home in Laguna with his neighbors That's over right. a piece of art that Bill Gross— At Chihuly was uh, a Chahuli piece of art. Who's Chihuly, by the way?
1: Dale Chihuly, famous okay. glass sculptor. You might have encountered his work when you walked into the Bellagio in Las Vegas oh, okay. and were overwhelmed by the thing over your head.
0: Okay, so that's Chihuly. And he had a piece, a Chihuly piece, uh, like an installation type thing, yeah. outside of his house. And he has these neighbors mm-hmm. who have a view of the ocean, but to see it, they have to look yeah. across Bill Gross's house, his yard, where this piece was. Yeah. And they weren't objecting to the piece itself. They were objecting to, like, some protective stuff that they put over the piece, right?
1: Yeah, so the idea here, what happened was... Maybe a palm frond fell, you know, something happened to this Dale Chihuly sculpture. That damaged it slightly. That damaged it slightly. Yeah. You know, it's literally installed on a lawn one foot from the cliff. I exaggerate. It's like 33 feet or something. <laughs> but Sorry. there's There's an exactitude there that is mandated by the county. Anyway. So this truly gets damaged. And it's a little odd because it's a very durable sculpture. Like Amy, Bill Gross's wife, was like, how could this happen? Like if I kicked the ball, it's made out of these like tall, stabby glass tubes and giant Balls yeah, a kick on the wouldn't ground. hurt it. Right. A kick wouldn't hurt it. It's built to survive. It's not yeah. supposed to. And like they put it in the yard. It's supposed to be okay outside. Yeah. So which is not unusual. Julies get installed outside all the time. Maybe not on cliffs, but all the time outside. So anyway, so something hurts it, and Amy loves this thing. This is her. These are her babies. She she's very um, invested in this sculpture. So they install what can only be described as a soccer net over it to protect it from you know the elements, and so the neighbor. Yeah, like you say, he and his wife have a 180 view of the of the ocean, right? Looking out from their master bedroom. And in the bottom right hand corner of that view is the Jihouli. It's just right up on the property line. It's like right. there's like a wall right there and it's just on the other side of the wall. And the Jihouli has up lighting, which I have what is a that? really strong it's just lights that go up. Okay. Have you been to like Chipriani downtown. Like, like, or like lights a on wedding. the ground that
0: point upwards. Yeah, to and they illuminate land something. on the wall and it's like okay.
1: purple. I got I didn't know what uplighting was until I got married and people were like, Do you want uplighting? And then they showed me what it was, and I was like, Oh my God, no. Okay. That's a thing people like and want. So, it's not for me. So,
0: so interfering with their view <laughs> is this work of art from a very well known artist, very expensive work mm-hmm. of art, I think. One million dollars. One million dollars. But it has this ugly uplighting and it has this ugly protective net and the neighbors don't like it. So then what? They start fighting, basically.
1: So the neighbors are like, can you take that net down? And Bill and Amy are like, no, we shan't. We shan't be doing that. And the neighbors file, you know, alert the county, the city of Laguna to the fact that This sculpture exists because Bill and Amy did not have the correct permits for Mm -hmm. the sculpture and for its netting. And this sort of seems to have sparked the war because basically immediately after the city came to talk to Bill and Amy about maybe getting those permits, they start playing music. At all hours, like fifty cent.
0: The grosses start. The grosses playing. Start in, start in playing retaliation mindset. for the complaints it of their been neighbors. It has ruled that it was in retaliation. Right. Yes. Okay.
1: Um, yes. So they start playing the theme song from Green Acres. They start playing the theme song from Gilligan's Island. To repeat. annoy
0: their neighbors, basically. To, to, I
1: certainly to... couldn't speak to intent. But. It, <laughs> it...
0: <laughs> or maybe they just really love the song, right? So they do they this. They say they
1: really loved the song.
0: And this leads to the. Sort of lawsuits, Mm -hmm. you know, against each other. Yes, quite. And it becomes this ludicrous battle over this piece of art, right? Yes,
1: big headlines. And
0: you use this fight as uh, a sort of entry point into a discussion over how very famous financier types end up using art as weapons against each other and as sort of visible marks of their own success, achievement, yes. prestige, and whatnot. And here's what you write. Uh, you write that this battle um, is part of, and I'm quoting you, a long line of collectors going to astonishing lengths mm-hmm. to defend their most precious belongings. These cases often spin out of control because art is always more than its component parts. It can become a manifestation of personal identity and control. Sometimes the art itself becomes a cudgel, unquote. hmm I think artworks have been parts of very famous divorces between like financiers and their spouses. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally you'll hear about two different financier types going after the same work and mm-hmm. bragging excessively when they get it <laughs> right you know or portraying I don't know it who and, you mean <laughs> yeah, portraying it in such a way as to uh, define their victory mm-hmm. essentially. And meanwhile, what we're talking about is some insanely rich people buying, million dollars works of art Mm -hmm. sometimes tens of millions Mm -hmm. from other very rich artists essentially and then using this as part of their battles against each other it it has become an antagonism Mm -hmm. you know uh, you know like yeah like it, it is it has led to using art as parts of these very antagonistic relationships yeah which i would imagine was not (laughs) <laughs> the original intent of the artists, right? Probably, uh, and probably <laughs> unless but, that's the performance. Unless it helps, you know, who knows? Yeah, but stabbing
1: it, the beast from inside the belly.
0: It it just seems like such a deep perversion of what art should be about, which is trying to understand uh, some deep part of human nature and then communicating it to and people. Like beauty and although, nature, and yeah, yeah. Although in these. Fierce battles. It is at least revealing some darker parts of human nature. Yeah, we Anyways. learn a lot. I think yeah. that's
1: right. And it was, it was fun doing the research for this piece because there are so many examples. Like you say, the there's a divorce going on right now between the Macalos, and it's horrifyingly sad. Who are the um,
0: Macalos? Real he's quick. like
1: a real estate guy. Frankly, I did not. I, <laughs> I didn't dig to Rich it. Rich real estate, estate guy. guy. Don't okay, worry guy. about it, okay? <laughs> right. But she's this big collector. And, you know, they collected together. They worked very hard to create this museum-quality collection. And it's, like, staggeringly beautiful. And it means the world to her. Like, she was very devoted to it. And I don't know if you know, do you remember that time there was, like, an enormous random portrait of a woman on Fifth Avenue?
0: Uh, I do not.
1: Okay, it was, like, 54th or something. I have to check. But it was Harry's new wife, and okay. he like had just gotten their portraits done for you know no reason.
0: Why. Oh yeah, and she just vaguely ha- he like owned like the this. building,
1: and she was gonna buy an apartment in the building. But then he just like plastered a picture of his new wife on the side of the building. And I just remember walking down the street and being like, what? (laughs) Like not knowing any of that and just being like, something really, this is not, this has no jewelry advertising on it. I couldn't buy what she's wearing if, like, they're not telling me what she's wearing, so this is really weird. And indeed, it was a part of this incredibly petty divorce. So knowing that the art meant so much to her, I think it sort of became this way to hurt each other. And I mean, I think it went both ways. Like, I think he also appreciated the art, but maybe not to the same extent that she did and does. So they had appraisers come in, as one does, and try to value the collection. But their appraisers were so far apart, were so far apart on valuing how much the collection was actually worth, that the judge ruled they had to liquidate and sell like half the collection because they couldn't come to an agreement. They were so far apart. Wow. And that's just like, ugh, that's just like, I know it's like a little hard to have sympathy. She can it's eat. So she's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: so ugly, though. Yeah. It's so ugly. It's just so painful. Uh, I'll say one final point about Bill Gross, the subject of your book.
1: The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Milton Lesma.
0: Thank you. <laughs> uh. Uh, and and the fight that he's having with his neighbors over this piece of art. It's all just so unbelievably sad. It is. Bill Gross is now in his 70s. He is worth, he's estimated to be worth Mm -hmm. more than a billion dollars, possibly even multiple billions of dollars. Yes. You know? And in his 70s now, with I think the better part of his career behind him, of course, right? Sure. You know, he's involved in all of this, like, Mm psychodrama, you know, all these incredible psychodramatic disputes with people. Yeah. Instead of like enjoying the years he has left, yeah, you know, he, can't he, exit. he could be throwing great parties for his close friends. Imagine. You know, and if he doesn't have any, he could spend time making some close friends, right? <laughs> he
1: has some. You I know. found them. Okay, good. Yeah.
0: Okay. So he could be having a good time with them. Yeah. He could be having great travel adventures. He could be going to great shows. He could be finding ways. Learning to pottery. Put that, yeah. Or finding ways to put that money to like some good use that he likes, you know, finding good causes Buying
1: houses for people who don't have them.
0: Sure. Do that. That sounds so fun. There's a lot of great options available um, to make really positive, lasting change and to find meaning in life. And he has the kinds of resources that most people will never have. Yes. You know, and instead he's in his 70s and this is how he's spending his time. There's something deeply sad there's something I think deeply pathetic in the literal sense of the word, not in the way it's often used, right like it, yeah. like it's just it's a horrible sort of outcome for somebody who really did earn a lot of the success and the wealth that he has now um and instead he's he's just looking back and and getting involved in these kinds of things and this was my reaction to your book, which was um. I think maybe different from your own reaction. If anything, I think you bent over backwards to be really fair to him.
1: I did. Right? Thank you.
0: You did, and uh, <laughs> I know he still complained about it, but and that's fine. But we're all entitled I, to
1: our I, I left.
0: I left with like quite a negative view of how he has spent a lot of his time, but especially in the last roughly decade and a half, you know, which that's is the, di- the wow, main that's part a long of the time. Book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I will say, you know, just to counter that, like he does do philanthropy. He does give money away, and I think he's given away a sub substantial amount but the fact that that's overshadowed by this dispute with his neighbor i think says a lot you know it's it's interesting the extent to which it gets kind of lodged in people's imagination because it's like people are just incredulous that that grown-up people behave this way that you have all the money in the world and this is how you spend your time and i think it pains him that this is part of his legacy now that this has changed the way he's seen and what will be left of him after you know like he doesn't – I don't think he wants this to be part of his legacy. This does, this isn't what he wants people to think about. He's supposed to – he said on, on the stand at some point, like, I'm trying to have a reputation to die with. And this isn't constructive. Like, I want to be remembered as a businessman and for giving away my money. And, like, here I am remembered for playing Gilligan's Island to, like, harassing my neighbors.
0: Well, I think a little bit of good judgment could have led him to see that that would be the outcome of starting this very strange petty fight with his neighbors. But yeah. – Fair as always is Mary Childs, and <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna leave that to the side and uh, forget about the legacy of Bill Gross. Let's talk about the legacy of Mary Childs. What's next for you? What are you working oh, on? Oh, big
1: naps. Um, <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm tired, Cardiff. <laughs> um, what's next for me? I actually have been working on a um children's book about sloths exercising. Okay. So okay. that's my next project. Um, that's, that's
0: terrific. Where thank did, you. Where did the inspiration for that come from?
1: Um, I. Don't know. I think I felt. No, I do know. I felt like a sloth. <laughs> okay. I started this a long time ago when I remember trying to like motivate myself to go exercise and just be like, you know, just like trying to move one paw and like get up and go to my friggin yoga class that I'd already paid for. And there's an animal that does that.
0: It's a sloth. And the
1: thing I like about yoga is you can go at your own pace. So, spoiler alert. And you
0: don't cut your fingernails. People don't know this about you. You have uh, a 14-inch long curled finger. Yeah, it's like Howard Hughes up in here. I have to uh,
1: dictate all my text messages. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, none of that is true. and I only eat leaves. But, um, yeah, I felt like a sloth, and I felt like a sloth would really thrive at yoga just like me. So that's the, spoiler alert, that's the ending.
0: Okay, That's great. Thank you so much. Mary Childs. (laughs) This was super fun. (laughs) (laughs) Less finance in that one. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for being on The New Bazaar.
1: This was a delight. Thank you.
0: And that's all the time we have for this week. We are going to post links and images of the stuff that Mary chose today in the show notes for this episode. So go to BazaarAudio.com to see them. Mary, uh, where can people find your other stuff?
1: You can find me on Twitter at, at Mary Childs. I'm on Instagram at MaryInAmerica, America. And I have a very periodic Substack. Offtherun.substack.com.
0: Excellent. Go find all that. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio. From me and executive producer, Amy Keene. Amy and I have been friends with Mary for some time. We all used to be colleagues at the FT. I can safely speak for Amy, uh, and say that uh, Mary, we are we are super proud of
1: you. Oh, thank you.
0: Uh, I'm proud of you. (laughs) Adrian Lilly is our, (laughs) thank you. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer. Our music is by Mr. Mary Childs, Scott Lane. Yes, shout out to Scott. Uh, And his partner, DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at And we'll see you next week. What if we replace Scott's great music with us going like Scotland in the house what what, Do you what? I, yeah, Do I you think we should what? use that